Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Listen, there's a reason the ultra-wealthy have been investing in fine wine for centuries. Historically stable returns and a lack of volatility make it stand out compared to traditional assets, especially during a downturn. But now you can invest alongside with them with Vint. Vint is an SEC-qualified investment platform that offers shares of the most sought-after wines in the world. So join the thousands of investors diversifying with fine wine and spirits. Learn more at VINT.co. For full investment disclosure information and more, visit VINT.co. Today's guest on Around the Coin is Nick Sapanero, the CEO of the Divi Project. Uh, Nick has a background as a freelance developer in the Divi Project, and he took over as the CEO uh, across his years in the journey. Uh, the organization Divi has raised two and a half million dollars. Uh, he is, Nick is currently based and lives out of Dubai. So we talked about, of course, what Divi is doing, uh, building the simplest, easiest way that people can get into and use crypto. We talked about him living in Dubai. He's from San Diego in the US, moved there. And so I asked them all about what life was like immigrating to that country, why he's there for crypto reasons, specifically what those benefits are. Um, we talked about immigration and the flow of people across the world in different countries. We talked about what specific areas of the world are the perfect place for crypto adoption and what could catalyze further growth in the future. And we touched on some of the most recent news with the Luna Project crash, uh, as well as much more. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Nick Sapanero. Nick, I'm excited to to chat more with you. Um, you run a pretty cool project that I learned that you took over as a CEO role. You started off as a freelance developer of the Divi project, and now you run the Divi project. Um, in your own words, how do you how do you describe what the Divi project is trying to do, the mission or vision as of today? Where do you point the north star? Yeah, the the mission and the philosophy really haven't changed since 2017 when we started the company. We started the project. You know, it was this focus on user experience, creating familiarized and accessible um, technologies for people to engage with cryptocurrency and blockchain in a way that made sense uh, from a mainstream perspective. I think there's some really incredible things being done in the space, uh, some really complex narratives being spun and, and technologies that you can engage with if you're really deep into crypto. Uh, but we wanted to focus on the eventual mass adoption of crypto, uh, which I think a lot of us still believe is is taking place even now, uh, although we haven't fully achieved full on mass, you know, adoption of this technology. So yeah, I mean, the same the same philosophy rings true today. Back in 2018, when we launched our one click masternode, it was the easiest way to set up a masternode. Now you can do that from your phone. You can stake from your phone with the swipe of a finger. Um, and everything within our ecosystem is just 
familiar. It's, it's what you would expect to see from a, from a mainstream app in 2022. Yeah. And do you think of the target user customer, you might say, as somebody who's working nine to five, not reading crypto throughout the day, they, they want to invest more into the space? Is that kind of how you, you think of it? Yeah, you know, I, I saw a talk from Andreas Antonopoulos a long time ago, and he talked about how user experience needs to drive the education of the user without them re- realizing they're learning. Um, you can't force people to become educated on every single thing. As you say, you know, people have jobs, kids, things to do after work and things like that. They can't necessarily be like you and I sitting on Twitter and reading white papers all day, right? Um, so you have to build experiences that guide them in the right path and don't confuse them along the way. Because each point of friction that a user deals with, and this is true in any technology, loses people um, and fragments the user base. So consolidating that value chain into one really easy to use simple app is uh, is really, I think, paramount to the success of, of all cryptocurrency apps, not just Divi. Mm. Yeah. And so what's working at Divi? I mean, can you discuss any of the traction numbers or specific products under the umbrella? As I understand it, the approach is to launch multiple products, just you know, roll them out. Um, wh- how, where are the, what's the current state of different products and their traction that, so far? Yeah, our flagship product has become our mobile wallet, the Divi wallet called um you know we launched that globally last october and soon thereafter became the official crypto wallet of the largest spanish soccer league la liga they're actually the second largest soccer league in the world um and we became a regional partner of them back in december and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we share a lot of the same you know fundamental philosophies in terms of helping communities building for people that uh, you want to help and things like that, but also because when they use the downloaded our our software, they could actually use and download our software really easily, right? And we do find that a lot of people that engage with our wallet, uh, the mobile wallet especially, are retirees, gra- actual grandmothers, and things like that. And of course, you have your your crypto native people. Um, so yeah, I would say you know obviously our 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 Divi Wallet is our main thing. Um, however, we have a bunch of other initiatives. We do have a desktop wallet. We're working on some DeFi things. And there's a lot more stuff coming down the pipeline that's sort of ancillary to, to everything else. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like the wallet makes the most sense to start with, at least. It's the necessary thing that people need to store crypto and then do other things with it. Um when you set up the organization, I, I understand you you came into the Divi project uh, well while it was already running. How is the? I find it fascinating in the different crypto projects how they structure the company and the project separately. Uh, can you help me understand? Did you not you per se, but was the company structured as a entity, an LLC or C corp in the U.S. first, and how, how the corporate progress, whether funding the company and then using that to ICO or um, some of the structure of the the company and then the project, the coin specifically? Yeah, I think our our corporate structure mirrors that of a lot of the big 
corporations and, and projects in the space um, where there's a, a for-profit entity that is a software developer and holds a lot of the IP. Um, and then there's a foundation, right? The DAO that sort of regulates the blockchain and is an open source project that I'm not even on the board of, right? I'm not even mm. necessarily part of that. Of course, I speak with the foundation and, and the uh, and the operators of that, but it's very important, especially to the U.S. regulators, that all of these projects are genuinely decentralized. Um, and a big part of that is structuring it so that one entity ne doesn't necessarily have a major influence on the other and they don't touch each other. Um, so there's like a treasury entity in between uh, that grants coins from the foundation to not just us, but other developers and things like that. Um, in the beginning, though, we've never been a, a U.S. company, by the way. Um, okay. Yeah, so we started in, in uh, Costa Rica and we moved our foundation uh, eventually to the Netherlands. Um, but right now I'm actually here in Dubai in the process of setting up everything here because the UAE is incredibly favorable to crypto and they're, they're really inviting as many crypto companies as they can to come be a part of this ecosystem here. And it's going to become essentially the hub of all crypto uh, wow. and really finance in many ways in the, in the coming years. Well, what are they doing specifically that makes it different? I think, I think the coolest thing that they're working toward is they set up this new regulatory entity called VARA. And I actually had a chance to sit down with these uh, folks, which is so unheard of. Like, you can just sit down with yeah. regulators and have a conversation. <laughs> Imagine trying to get a meeting with Hester Pierce or something, you know, <laughs> as a smaller project. Um, so, but the way that they're doing it is like, they're actually piloting uh, a program alongside some of the biggest companies in the space. So they're working with Crypto.com and Bybit and Binance and all these big ones. And they, they basically are saying, come operate here as you normally would. Do what you would normally do on a daily basis, and we will watch that activity so we can understand what a crypto company and what a blockchain company actually does on a daily basis and not try to shoehorn a current regulation uh, or shoehorn these companies into a current regulatory framework, which I think is a wonderful approach um, that I wish more governments were taking because now the regulations will be written as as they should be alongside the actual people that are working on this technology day to day. Um, and that's a huge part of, of their initiative. Um, but also they offer all sorts of different subsidized licensure and things like that to help uh, even small innovative companies like ours come in and, and become part of uh, the larger you know, crypto ecosystem in, in the UAE. Do, do you mean literally that they're inviting founders and members of the team into their offices like co-working style or just into the country yeah it's actually it's crazy so there's several what they call like free trade zones here in, U in the uae um and yeah you can literally set up a desk within these free trade zones whether it's there's like a world trade center here there's one called uh the difc and there's a few others and part of the onboarding process basically is you can get you could get as small as a flex desk in a co-working space or a full office uh right there on on premise which is really cool you know like that's solving a, a huge need so now you can just focus on sourcing talent because they want they want to bring a lot of employment into this region 
Um, and the only way to do that is to make it low cost and cost effective and enable people to just get right on the ground running, right? Mm. And so their motivation is get more people, more productive people, which, you know, aligns with what a government would want, which is growth. Uh, yeah. And they're really emphasizing people. You can't, I know, for instance, in Estonia, a lot of the Caribbean islands, you know, you see like uh, Cayman Islands companies are incorporated there, where it's just kind of a shell. You know, you might have to go down there once or twice a year as a director, but ultimately people aren't moving down there en masse. Does that seem to be a different philosophy than what UAE has in mind? Yeah, I think they they don't want to just be another tax haven, which in many ways they are. You know, there's no income tax, there's no um, capital gains tax on crypto and things like that. So there are those aspects to it. Um, But yeah, they, as you said, they want productive individuals coming in and actually living here and, and being a part of the economy here, uh, which I think is a, a unique difference to some of the other havens that have existed over time, like Malta and things like that, Mm. where you just throw a company there and, and that's it from, from a tax perspective. Yeah. So how do you think it rolls out? Do you think, uh, say, for instance, the Divi project will offer options to people to move to UAE or will it be mandatory or or does it matter? Yeah, I think we'll stay largely remote for a long time. Just makes sense for this kind of industry. Um, but ultimately, yeah, we'd love to have more people like I'm I'm moving myself here. A couple of our right. executives are also going to move here. Um so yeah, I mean it's a great place to live as well. It's it's awesome. Like <laughs> you go yeah. to the beach, it's a great healthy lifestyle and everything. So it's not like uh I think there's a lot of like preconceived notions about the Middle East, especially where we grew up in the US, that are just just not true. And um you really have to come and experience it. Yeah, and what were you doing before? Where where did you grow up? I know you said you started or the Divi project was started in Costa Rica. Where where did you spend your years prior to the Divi? Yeah, I grew up actually on the East Coast in New Jersey, um, but I moved to California almost eight years ago now. So I've been living in San Diego, uh, which is also a beautiful <laughs> beach place and everything like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've just uh, I've just been remote for so long that I started to do the sort of digital nomad thing about a year ago, um, especially when I took over Divi as a CEO. I wanted to travel and meet people and try to you know, engage with as many communities as I could. Um, and having a remote company like this allows people to do that. So, um, yeah, I've, I've kind of been like citizen of the world now for, <laughs> for about a year. Yeah. Yeah. It seems appropriate then to be in Dubai, which I, I think of as being, you know, I picture cities like New York, uh, originally maybe like London, New York, Toronto as being huge multinational hubs for people coming from all over the world. But Dubai, it seems like they have that that initiative, which is bring people in, create a structure where people can be productive. Uh, wh- what's the downside there? I mean, other than it's hot to do <laughs> that, but are, are there are there structural things, like governmental structure things? When you think of no income tax, no cap gains, where do you pay the price? What's the balance on that? You I mean there are some pretty strict rules, of course. Um, but they're very transparent about what those rules are, right? It's not like it's not like you break one and then 
all of a sudden you're in trouble. Like they're very clear, like don't speed on the roads, don't run red lights, don't steal from people, you know, the, the typical things, but the punishments are pretty harsh. Um, and you know, there's some, uh, there's some like in, the internet is free and open, but it is, you know, to an extent monitored and things like that. So coming from the U S that might serve as somewhat of a shock. Um, so little things like that. Like there's no tax, but if you go over, you know, 30 kilometers over the speed limit, you're going to get a fine just like sent to your phone, basically, <laughs> you know? Um, so there's things, there's like underlying taxes, I would say, uh, yeah. if you're, if you're not careful and then, yeah, it's, it's super hot in the summer, but I mean, honestly, I've been here for three months now and it, the weather's been absolutely astounding. I know it's going to heat up here soon, but, um, as long as you're not being a criminal <laughs> you're, yeah you're all good you know it's interesting and it, it it's truly the middle too like you're talking about a hub right like london new york all these places it's like literally it's the middle east right so to get to europe you're five to seven hours flight pretty much anywhere in europe um it's not hard to get home to the u.s it's longer flight um and then asia is not that long either it's probably equidistant from the u.s uh from here and then you know, like Japan from here. Um, so as a hub is concerned, it's a great place from like an enterprise and commercial perspective. In the last 10 years, over $100 billion worth of crypto has been lost or stolen, specifically because of poor key management scams and hackers. Forget not your keys, not your crypto. Software and hardware wallets have both the same vulnerability that a single private key can be lost, hacked, or simply just misplaced. My new sponsor, the Zengo Crypto Wallet, is a total game changer, bringing wallet security to a whole new level. You have to check out Zengo, an on-chain crypto wallet with no private key vulnerability, leveraging advanced cryptography called MPC, which has, just until now, only been available to multi-billion dollar institutions. So Zengo, most secure Web3 wallet, the best place to keep your crypto, NFTs, and assets secured. It's also fully recoverable using their biometric recovery system, and it's also just beautiful. Get started at zengo.com and use code ATC to get $20 back on your first purchase of $200 or more. That's zengo.com, code ATC for $20 back on your purchase of $200 or more. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's an interesting conversation because a lot of people are in that situation where they can be physically anywhere and maybe they're in crypto, but maybe they're not. But, you know, taxes, regardless of whether you're in crypto, cap gains, no income affect everybody. When you think about immigrating to, to, to buy UAE, are there barriers you need to get over? Like I know oftentimes you'll have to get a travel visa than a work visa in the US it's a green card or h1b is how is their immigration process yeah i mean for for us citizen it's pretty simple um especially if you're setting up a company here and like pretty much anyone can set up a, a company you could set up an llc for 1500 bucks here and get four visas for you and your employees under uh, under a tech innovation license um, which is of course a, a program that they're running currently. It might not last forever, but, um, yeah, so you just have to get a visa and they expire yearly. You just renew them as long as you still have a company. It's pretty simple, straightforward. They also have something called an Emirates ID, which is basically just you're registering with, the uh, uh, with the country and it's a secondary ID that you have to carry, but those aren't hard to get either. 
So yeah, it's a pretty straightforward process, honestly, for just about anywhere you're coming from. Yeah. And, and being outside the US, you don't have to pay. You're not, do you have to give up citizenship? Or at what point does it make sense to yeah, do that? That's a, that's a good question that a lot of my, a lot of my friends here ask me like, Oh, are you going to give up your passport? Like, no, nah, I don't think so. I know that a lot of people in crypto are all about, you know, expatriating and trying to find the best like tax jurisdiction and stuff. A lot of my friends have moved to Portugal, uh, you know, gotten the Portuguese passport, but they just announced that they're going to tax crypto. Um, Dominica is another one that a lot of people in crypto have moved to or moved their passport to. Um, but that passport doesn't grant you as much access as you might think to the rest of the world. Like we have the best passport in the world. US? Yeah, by far. Like you can go anywhere pretty much without a visa for as long as you want, almost, you know, at least with, within reason, uh, you know, 30 days or what have you. Um, it's hard to give that up, I think, even with like the yeah. tax situation. Um, yeah. and it's, it's your home too. You know, I think there's a, there's an element to that that people don't consider. They're like, yeah burn my passport (laughs) (laughs) not that easy you know yeah well it's also really inconvenient when you move to a place like portugal and you get rid of your u.s passport and you get there and they change the tax laws like these things aren't set in stone right i mean they, they could change at any point uh so it does seem like a major price to pay. Do you see a, a significant number of people in crypto doing that, giving up if they're in the U.S., giving up their U.S. passport and moving to other places, like on a permanent, no-turn-back basis? I think there was a pretty mass exodus to Puerto Rico um, yeah. over the past like five years. And that's kind of your middle ground, right? You're still paying, you pay like 3% tax or something as long as you stay there for half the year and you don't have to give up your US passport. I think that was a good middle ground, but like the infrastructure there is just leaves you wanting a little bit. Um, I do see some of like the more wealthy, I guess, crypto people giving up their their actual US passports. But I, I don't think it's as common as it seems. I think there's like a vocal minority that talks about it. Um, because it's not, I've looked into it. It's not as straightforward as they make it sound like there's, and, and there's still some tax burden that you have to, that follows you for a few years, even after you do it. So it's not a, it's not a cut and dry thing at all. Yeah. 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 It does seem like you're going to pay a price. There's no, there's no free lunch. If you leave the U S then you (laughs) don't have to pay U S taxes, but then, I mean, what about your personal network? Do you have a family here? Do you have friends here? Do you want to travel here? Uh, and then the other places you go, like you said, infrastructure may be an issue. All sorts of things come up that, you know, life's complicated. Governments are complicated. Traveling, setting up new life in new places is not as straightforward. Uh, plus, when you get older and you have a family, it's like, well, wh- I'm going to have a kid. I'm going to, where am I going to live? So interesting to hear your yeah. perspective on that. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing. Uh, on Divi, I want to learn more about your uh, uh the ICO. So when you launched the ICO in 20, what was it? 18? 17. 17. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I saw 2.7 million. Was that roughly the amount that went through uh, the ICO process or came came in through the ICO? Yeah, just about. Um, just around that, depending on the price of ETH at the moment, um, at that moment. Um, you know, there was a lot of marketing and legal costs that followed that. And then, um, so we probably, we probably ended up with in hand, like a million and a half dollars after all was said and done. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and we had to use that to build as much as possible. Of course, back then it was, it was the wild west, which it still is to an extent. A lot of people just like walked away from things. Um, so like even, even projects that had 40 million or a hundred million, you know, were walking away <laughs> from, from their That's responsibility. Crazy. I know it was, it was insane. It was a terrible look for the industry as well, but we really wanted to build what we wanted to build. Um, so we had to build it lean, like a regular startup. Which, uh, which I think was challenging in the face of some of the big competitors at the time, like EOS at the time, raised a billion dollars, <laughs> right? Um, so, and we still had to come out with products and and deliver on our promises to our community, um, which was which was challenging. You know, we we definitely along the way made some mistakes and hired some of the wrong people or or what have you. Um, definitely ran into a ton of legal headaches as the the moving target of the law kept changing um but despite all that we were able to to pull out um a really in my opinion world-class product and of course it's grown over time now it's 2022 and we have our what i would consider our mvp is just about out um you know we're, we're about to launch a big set of features that allow you to actually onboard with with your fiat dollars and and offboard into your bank account and swap cryptos and things like that but which sounds simple, right? Like a lot of apps do that, but to do it in a hybrid ecosystem is legally and technically a minefield (laughs) because we believe that if you have crypto in your wallet, you should own it outright. You should be the only ones with the keys to those coins. Um, But of course, the banking system doesn't care about that. They're a custodial system. So like, how do you onboard somebody with their dollars get them crypto and then put it back in their wallet and ensure that all of those processes take place automatically and instantly um, and legally. So we've been able to accomplish this and uh, it's taken a while, but um, you know, later this month, most likely we'll, we'll actually have that out for the first time for everyone. And I'm really excited about that. Yeah. Damn. That's a big step uh, underneath the hood there. So that's, uh, we're talking mid May. So you're talking end of May, 2022. When you, uh, think about the architecture that, that you and the team have built to allow people to move money from a custodial U S bank account into their wallet on Divi, what goes on underneath the hood conceptually? Is it a, uh, is there another tool, a third party platform or something that's you're using to facilitate bank transfers or just generally, how how is money moving around? Yeah, we work with um, at least for the fiat side of things. We work with uh, a U.S. trust company, actually, uh, one of the biggest ones uh, to facilitate wire transfers and ACH connections and and uh, credit card processing and things like that. And they actually have the ability to custodialize both fiat and crypto, um, a set of cryptos at least. So we have this um, we have this underlying API layer basically where the user engages with it and like let's say you wanted to buy Bitcoin, um, connect your bank account or you use your credit card, you pay for it, and what they do is they take your fiat, they verify that it's legit, and then they send you basically they deposit the Bitcoin back into your wallet. So it's only custodial in nature for like a few seconds. Um, and then the Bitcoin is yours, truly and, and fairly. So, and the same goes with all the coins that will enable onboarding for. Um, and we do we do this with several, you know, 
API layers. Some our own, some third party, but uh, ultimately it all comes together in one little seamless package. In the the say in that simple example, when someone has say a hundred dollars in a U.S. bank account and they want to use the interface Divi uh, Divi Wallet to buy Bitcoin, so when when you're connecting, you being Divi, uh, when you say receive the U.S. dollar, do you hit the API of the trust company and said, hey, we want to do do they facilitate the exchange too? So they'll say, you know, provide the banking routing number, send us this money, and then that, that goes into their bank account, and then they will send Bitcoin from some... Wh- where does the crypto originate from? Is there an exchange which they're pulling from or just the general wallet that they use? The, yeah, there's several sources uh, of liquidity. Sometimes the exchange... Uh, sometimes their own pool of liquidity. You know, they do a bunch of other business in crypto, so they have a pretty substantial pool of of liquidity that they can pull from. Um, obviously, if it's a massive order, it's going to take longer, and they're they're going to have to hit the exchange or something. But um, for a hundred dollars in Bitcoin, yeah, it's it's pretty much mm-hmm. instant. Um, yeah, and it's so they they handle like uh, if it's a larger order, you have to do KYC and things like that. Of course, it's with the bank, um, so they handle all of that. We don't ever really touch that that stuff it's not our intention um and yeah they make it really simple basically you're setting up a a small custodial account with this other with this third party um, but we just have a license to facilitate that in our own Mm. our own world yeah yeah that's that's great Uh, uh, where do you think of the uh the you mentioned earlier the um the soccer team the uh where was that from um yeah la liga from spain la liga do you think of folks uh, like partnerships through there to bring awareness to people in different countries or how do you think of the target demographic uh, because what you described is available like there is a like a coinbase option for people in the u.s so i'm thinking is it something that um folks in other countries wouldn't have easy access to due to the lack of exchanges or do you think of this as just a a fundamental product feature that you need to build to then build other things down the road yeah i mean a big part of it is also having an on-ramp for our coin divi um outside of of course the obvious just buying ethereum and, and or ether and, and bitcoin and things like that um but yeah i mean there are a lot of unserved communities by the majors right now even even pe- my friends in puerto rico some of them can't use crypto.com and things like that and these major exchanges um so yeah we because of the way that the governments of the world view what we do, it's more of a software development company. Um, we have a lot more flexibility over who can actually engage with it. And I think that's going to become really attractive, especially to uh, you know the communities here in the Middle East and North Africa, Southeast Asia, China, et cetera, um, where, where our primary jurisdiction is with with la liga and as we expand that partnership and and move into the the bigger regions um i think it'll still be really important because there's a lot of places that have basically no on-ramp to crypto right Mm. now like i can't imagine how much actual demand there is that's not being facilitated or met by one way one way or another um and i feel like that's where you know right now we're in an obvious bear market but maybe the next bull market comes from that demand being met partially by us and partially by others um, and innovative regulators enabling more people to onboard into crypto. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any idea what the 
numbers behind that is. Uh, I guess the number of people on the planet who have internet that don't have access to crypto. I think the I think the number. Uh, how many people are on the planet? Eight eight billion something in, in yeah, that range nearing nine billion right now nearing nine. <laughs> uh which yeah. i've heard recently is we're pretty close to to like peak population which is a crazy concept like during our lifetime there will be the most people on the planet that there might ever be <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know it's, okay here we go it's uh seven point almost nine five billion i just looked it up okay and then of those who have the internet uh what percentage have access to buy crypto say through through (laughs) like a relatively simple exchange you know everyone that has internet could get bitcoin right they could just Mm -hmm. receive it but that's it realistically people aren't receiving bitcoin for nothing they have to move money from their local fiat into bitcoin or, or some other crypto um yeah, when you mentioned this being potentially like the catalyst, any idea what like percentage of countries or, or population? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I haven't seen like the most recent numbers probably, but I think even just a few years ago, it was like only 13% of the population actually owns crypto, like the world population. That's probably grown a little bit. But when you think about like, we have people in our community right now that still get their Bitcoin from local Bitcoins like direct OTC sellers in person. <laughs> so there has to be just a fire hydrant of people behind this pressure of, of demand. Um, and I, I'm, I'm interested to see what that looks like during the next cycle, you know, the next big bull run. Yeah. Have you seen it be uh, peak peak demand? I know larger markets are just going to have more money, the U.S., uh, European countries, et cetera. Um, Aside from being having more capital in a, in a country, some countries have problems with the fiat currency. They have corrupt governments. Any particular countries that you've seen or areas that you've seen that um, have been like really in high demand? People who are, I know Venezuela has gone through a, a crazy you know, few years with their government. Um, any other areas or insights that you've seen from demand? Yeah, I've heard that there's a huge um, population of Bitcoin users and demand in Argentina. And I know a lot of uh, crypto companies are beginning to focus in in that country, um, which is interesting. I think there's a lot of Latin American countries that have the same issue as Brazil um, and the same issue that like El Salvador has or had um, in Argentina as well. And like... Um, there's also a number of people in like various parts of Africa that actually do have money, but their banking systems are so restricted that they can't get their money anywhere. Um, and now, of course, Eastern Europe also has a pretty significant issue and <laughs> demand to move their money out of out of fiat and into into crypto. So, and you know, we can never predict the macro climate like that, obviously. But I think there's a lot of macroeconomic structures that will enable uh more demand for for cryptocurrency especially as this next economic cycle starts to happen we're starting to see um you know probably the greatest economic decline in in human history uh since the great depression about to happen and starting to happen so um it'll be interesting to see like how the thesis around crypto 
holds up against an actual economic downturn, which we're starting to see now. Of course, everything's just down right now. But that's how, that's what always happens. Like during the recession, the Great Recession, so to speak, like all commodities took a hit, right? Gold went down, silver, all these things, but then they start to come back up shortly thereafter. So I'm interested to see if Bitcoin and cryptocurrency follow that track um, or if they just are totally c- correlated to the NASDAQ. No one really knows, I don't think, right now. Yeah, yeah. What's your, how do you make sense of, 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 everything that's going on. I, I, with a bit of preamble, I think of money has to flow somewhere. So people, when they have cash or they have a liquidity in some form or fashion, could be crypto, could be, uh, I think of specifically liquid assets. So equities, uh, not real estate, not physical assets like a boat or something, but things you can quickly trade. That That tends to, in a downturn, move to things that are stable, things that are uh, secure. If there's a chance that there's going to be a call, like you know, money in a bank, banks loan out more money than they have on the balance sheets. So after World War II, people are actually prior to, people are trying to get money out of banks. They can't get money out of banks. That was a big part of the Great Depression um, nearly 100 years ago now. It does seem like Bitcoin in particular and crypto more broadly provide a place where the world can secure uh with with i mean the fact that there's no intervention from the government once you're in that space you know obviously the government and the banks are intertwined so things can change there and your ability to move money into crypto but it it does seem like aside from speculation on gains just purely the if you think of it as a like a property of a place you could put money, crypto has the property that it's you know it, it can't be taken away by the government. What what do you what are your thoughts? I mean, do you think that economic depression downturns make crypto more obvious a good decision for people across the world, or do you have any take from your travels? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think they should. You know the the thesis around specifically bitcoin you know it is sound money it has the properties of of money to the extent that it can um it has its issues as far as like being functional of course we have the lightning network and stuff now that make it a lot easier to transact with but regardless of all that as a pure vehicle for value storage there hasn't really been a better solution for that in the past decade plus. Um, and I, I expect that to continue. I think that they'll, they being, you know, the competing narratives against Bitcoin and against cryptocurrency um, will use the current bear market and like what's happening with Luna, Terra Luna and everything like that um, to again, shoehorn us into various regulatory frameworks and things like that and and try to convince people that, no, it's not the safe haven that, you know, these Bitcoin psychopaths <laughs> would lead you to believe. Um, but if you actually zoom out and you look at how Bitcoin has performed over the past 13 years since its inception or what have you, it's up only. Like, it's, it's on a positive trend line. Um, and there's there's really no reason that that should falter in its resolve. So um, I think we're going to face some some rocky waves over the next 
six or eight months. Uh, but ultimately, yeah, I think people will come to their realization, especially as CBDCs start to rear their heads, because CBDCs are like the antithesis of, of cryptocurrency, right? It's censorable. It's uh, <laughs> it's regulated. It's uh, completely centralized in every every possible way. D- define uh, the acronym uh, for me. Uh, sorry, it's a uh, central bank digital currency. Mm-hmm. So these digital yuan or digital dollar eventually, you know, that has been discussed at length now in, in the government and uh, in, uh, in our government. Um, it's this concept that like you could digitize the dollar, which of course you can. Um, but if it's not implemented on a blockchain, the way that most cryptocurrencies are, it just becomes another way for um, the dollar to become controlled. I mean, instead of printing the money, you just increase the number on your screen, right? Um, you could actually even limit the number of times uh, a certain dollar could be transferred or spent um, or the number of days that that dollar is valid. Those types of things are really scary. So um, as people start to realize the difference there and the nuance in that discussion becomes present, um, I think more and more people will start to move toward decentralized currencies. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Mm. What do you think is the the cause behind the recent economic downturn? <laughs> um, I mean, there's there's a lot of a lot of reasons, but a lot of it comes down to really, really irresponsible monetary policy. You know, I think we printed something like thirteen trillion dollars over the course of a few years since That's the pandemic crazy. began. Yeah, that's absurd. Um, and you know, the, the way that they look at it is like, well, we can basically just print ourselves out of debt. Um, and this is philosophy called modern monetary theory, but, um, it doesn't work. You can't hyperinflate, you can't inflate, uh, a currency to get rid of debt. It just creates a different kind of debt or more debt even. Um, so that was a big part of it hyperinflated valuations on pretty much every asset also did not help. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of the money that was printed was pumped directly into the equities markets, you know, stocks. So, and into the housing markets. And we end up with a s- scenario where like basically four major companies own a majority of everything in the world. You know, you have BlackRock, Fidelity, uh, Vanguard, and and then there's one other um, that have trillions of dollars under under their purview, under their management. Um, and so, you know, that's why you're seeing a lot of housing uh, prices go crazy and, and stocks go crazy and things like this. And now we're starting to see the cracks in that armor, right? Tech stocks are... If you bought Netflix at the beginning of this year, it, it would be like buying a, a, a shit coin <laughs> you know it's it's down like 50 percent. some stocks down 85 percent um which is just the beginning of course we also have a, a war in ukraine uh that russia's began and uh you know a huge amount of supply chain issues sri lanka is basically out of oil out of fuel 
um, and their fuel prices are insanely inflated. I mean, it's just, it's all compounding. Um, Ukraine is responsible for 25% of the wheat production worldwide. And now like a lot of those supply chains are cut off. Um, there's an oil pipeline that like, there's a million things happening all at once. <laughs> Plus mm. we just got out of a pandemic. So, um, but if you've been watching for a while, you, you would see this coming, you know, the, the bubble of all things has been blowing for, for years. Yeah. Almost a decade. Yeah. 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 It does seem the, the root, one of the like, mo I mean, you, you not only just touched on it, but it's just described it, the monetary policy of printing so much money to get yourself out of debt. Uh, you have to think about it from a first person, first principle perspective. If, if a country owes another country some value accumulation, which is human beings performing labor. And there's a, there's a number associated that, which is tracked on some balance sheet in the form of a currency, a fiat currency, then that has to be repaid. And you can print more currency. You can, you can change the books, right? You can change the, per, the percentage of debt relative to the percentage of currency in that fiat, but it doesn't change the first principles. Like if, if the, if I take out a loan to buy a car, I enjoy this car. I drive around with it. Tops down, music's loud. It's great. There's value I'm receiving. If I'm not, if I'm not paying for that in some form or fashion, if I'm not giving up my time, then, then there, there will be hell. Like there will be that you know, in some way the universe will, will claim, uh, something from me in return for that car. And I think that that, there, that may be tied to the bigger economic trend of the American empire, uh, which I've become more and more interested in, uh, after reading Ray Dalio's book. Have you read this or heard of this theory of, the, uh, I know the theory, and Ray Dalio is a is a legend, obviously. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's a, it's a, it's the only time I've heard any macroeconomic theory that makes sense to me. Because I one of the things I do firmly believe is that everything that is alive or exists will eventually not, and that everything has cycles. Like I was born, I'm going to die. That just about everything that could offer value and do something in the world has this kind of cycle, and understanding that cycle and understanding the properties that uh, help you observe where it is in that cycle. Like anybody who's stiff and frail uh, and old, like th those, those are properties of being old. You know, when you're, you're supple and you're small, like those are properties of being young. So they're just, it's part of this cycle that to me feels like, yeah, of course we're print. Of course, the United States is printing a ton of money because they're trying to preserve the 150 military bases we have extended across the world, and we have an ego that is set such that we are the dominant superpower. And in reality, there's a miscalibration between our our expected uh, return. You know what we ought to work for what we get back between what actually is is uh, parallel with other places on the planet, you know, to be able to go as an American and go to another country and spend a dollar on a meal, uh, you receive benefits from the currency exchange because people want the dollar. And I think that that that's shifting. And I, one of the things I often wonder about curious to hear your reaction is what these, um, reserve currency will be after the dollar. And I've heard people talk about China as China passes the U S and 
total GDP, that China will push their currency to be the reserve currency. But we're also like that. That's generally what tends to happen as empires come up is they push their reserve currency as the standard one. The U.S. did that in the 1940s after World War II. But maybe it's crypto. Maybe it, it isn't that. So, yeah, maybe maybe this time we get to decide <laughs> if we're if we're smart enough as a as a general population we will decide we will make that choice for for ourselves um collectively and, and find consensus um in reality you know the the most likely outcome is that we do start to see a shift toward the rmb or the the, the yuan the digital yuan we're already starting to see some countries that are sort of outside the purview of the united states because the basically the minute that the uh the dollar is threatened anywhere a war begins <laughs> mm. uh you know the us just goes in and says like no 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 that's not going to happen um but if enough countries eliminate their reliance on the us that could change um and we're starting to see that egypt i think just began accepting yuan for some of their commodities there's been talks of even saudi arabia and and some other Middle Eastern countries starting to take um, yuan for oil, and there's a lot of there's a lot of investment coming out of China into Africa, Africa, and yeah. Middle East. A lot in Africa, like they're basically building full on infrastructure, which of course for like the current generation is great because they get the chance to have like a middle class and things like that. But long term, it's really it could be detrimental because. China has now a ton of influence on these on these governments and on these areas and can implement their currency as the standard currency. Uh, I mean, it's a genius like strategy <laughs> for, for, from China's perspective. And, you know, China thinks in, in centuries, not decades, centuries, like they're thinking 100 years ahead at all times. Um, so they don't care about waiting. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that I think that's a very real threat that we've been hearing. You, I'm sure we're around the same age, like. You've been hearing about it since you're a kid. Oh, China's going to take over. One day we'll yeah. all speak Chinese. Yeah. Like we've always heard this. But now starting to see what I'm 30 now, 30 years on, uh, it's starting to like come to fruition. It, it, it could happen in the next 25, 30 years. You know, it's pretty insane. Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt. I mean, when you look at the the, the lines, they intersect right about now. I mean, there, it's a, it's a pretty wild time to be alive because you don't often live through a change of superpowers, uh, especially one that you're a part of. And I, I, I'm really hesitant to the inclination naturally is, uh, to be on the line that goes up, but I, I hesitate to label it as good or bad. Um, and more or less like it is what it is like, is death bad? I don't know. I mean, it, it's a necessary part of life. Part of life. Yeah. And I feel like you must have seen this, this meme, uh, of hard times, strong men, weak, you know what I'm talking about? Yep. Yep. Hard men seen create. The, yeah. The yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, good times, create soft men, soft men, create hard times, hard men, hard times, great hard men. And obviously it's not about men. It's just about the euphemism of, uh, of life, right? You work, why do you work hard? So you don't have to work hard. And that's the cycle. Right. It's like you, you fucking bust your ass. So you don't have to bust your ass and then you don't bust your ass long enough. And then now you have to bust your ass again. And that's, that's a property <laughs> that's true of the individual, but it's also true broadly of society. And I think that that's, 
that's like, well, t- good. Let's strap up. Like, let's build. That's my mentality. Exactly. You know? And that's exactly, in my opinion, like, that is uh, our revolution. You know, our generation's revolution really is this financial revolution, this opportunity to reclaim a lot of, maybe not all of, but a lot of what has been lost about the financial system um, and sort of set the course, uh, set it back on course. And now is a great time to build. You know, the bear market, things settle down. You got like half the people that were interested in this thing kind of go away and there's a lot less noise. And we'll have our, you know, occasional collapse of something. But, you know, we still, I mean, I still believe, I've been in this since 2013. Um, I still believe that this democratizes our ability to access money. Um, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, in the world, your education level, it doesn't care. It has no prejudice whatsoever. It's one of the few things on earth that's ever been created that is actually 100% fair. Um, so it's just about building and making sure that everyone does have access to it. And it's freaking easy to, to get access to it before it becomes a problem. Like you're saying earlier, what if they do make it impossible to access? Like we need to get as many people into this system as possible. Um, so that if that eventuality does occur, we're already here and it's mm-hmm. at least, you know, we've, we've facilitated the change in a, in as great a way as possible. Totally, man. Get the boats on shore. It's like, I, 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 which is directly in line with what you guys are building. Uh, you know, when you make it easier for people to get access, they get access, they get familiar. And ultimately governments are just a collection representative of people, whether it's centralized or democratized it just represents people so the more people are clear-minded with the benefits uh the more likely they'll there won't be pushback centralized on the government side um when you think of funding that's the downside of a bear market people are easier to hire it's often quieter you can build without distractions uh things are better cost per acquisition is cheaper Fundraising is a hard part. You you guys have raised two point seven. All right, not with the ICO. You said like one and a half five years ago. Is there other modes of funding that you've utilized? Or as I understand, the team is roughly thirty people. How do you make the? How do you make it work? Yes. Yeah, so I mean, uh, we have brought on partners throughout the course of our tenure, uh, so to speak nothing huge Mm -hmm. but um most of what we've done has just been on our own revenue uh whether that be from treasury grants or our SaaS products that are in our wallets um and now with with these forthcoming additional features you know we expect our revenue to grow a lot more even outside of like the treasury grant side of things i think for me as a ceo it's really important to rely less on the coin on the treasury grants and more on substantive you know fiat revenues, unfortunately, <laughs> but, um, you know, always pushing that fiat right back into the market as much as humanly possible. Um, yeah, I mean, obviously fundraising is more difficult in a bear market, but it really just comes down to different multiples on your valuation. Um, if you're willing to, if you need to raise money, you just take a lower valuation, mm-hmm. right? And you raise a little bit less than you would in a, in a bull market when you can raise at a, at a higher multiple. Um, I think it's just about being strategic about a fundraising and then leveraging those funds for the right things, you know, not just shotgunning marketing at whatever, <laughs> um, 
you know, but actually deploying capital strategically and, and making real money. Um, I think there's so many companies that forgot, like you actually have to make money, <laughs> you know? Um, so, uh, we've, we've been really fortunate as well because some of our IP is patented or patent pending. You know, we get licensure licensing deals, um, for different enterprises. So we've have, a, we've shifted a lot of focus to our B2B, uh, business, you know, actually building either white label or integrating our API with a variety of different, um, uh, technologies or what have you, what have you, because every, every single company is going to need crypto, just like every company needed a website back in the nineties and a, and a social media later on and an app later on. And, and now, you know, you need a cryptocurrency play, whether it's web three or NFTs or a wallet, every single company needs this. So I think we're in a good position. Uh, mm. to keep growing, building even through this bear market. Do you think of, I mean, if you do think of fundraising again through the for-profit entity, does that introduce a um, a complication in the sense that I, I think of the for-profit entity generally as like the spark for the, the crypto project? So you have the DAO that operates, the point of the crypto, the point of the for-profit entity is to like spark the DAO, you know, raise money, hire developers, build out the infrastructure, uh, use some of the token sales to incentivize more externally, uh, external developers to build on top of the DAO and eventually like wind the for-profit entity down to nothing, which is a strange concept. Uh, Is that the trajectory you see it or is there a place to raise funding for the company? Yeah, I mean, um, our, our focus when we talk to investors um, and we're we're in talks with some now actually about expanding and doing some bigger things. Um, my focus, at least, and I think our our whole board's focus is, if we're going to raise money, we don't give up control of the company, and we ensure that whoever we're raising from shares the same values and philosophy as us. Um, and that may be that may have the trajectory that you just described. Um, it may be. I, I think ultimately, yes, like. Whatever happens with Divi Labs, the for-profit entity, um, the the wind down period, so to speak, whether that wh- whatever that exit looks like, has to enable the DAO to accelerate and, and move on on its on its own mm-hmm. legs. Um, so finding investors that understand that first of all and share that philosophy and that vision um, is really important. And there are a lot more now than there were even three years ago. Um, that do share that vision and see that they can still make money, that they can still exit in a way that makes sense for their bottom line, but it may not be, you know, listing on NASDAQ or whatever. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's the, it's almost like the antithesis of the classical VC startup where you're like, okay, we're going to raise a bunch of money and then we're going to decrease the size and eventually fizzle out. And it's going to be a wild success. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, It's a hard sell. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Our headcount's going to go down to zero in three years. Uh, (laughs) The the financial incentives are when an investor say you went out and said, okay, we want to raise 20 million, uh, making that number up. Your pitch to the VC is, do you get do you give up ownership like shares in the company or is it a agreement with the foundation to allocate divi coin like how, how would how would the pathway to returns work i find that there's a variety of approaches that 
uh, the different funds might take. Some are completely hybrid, like you just described. Some are fully equity, which is fine. Um, and some are fully coin, mm. right? They don't even care about equity. So it really just depends on like the mandate of that particular firm and their risk tolerance and their their appetite for for what we're doing. Um, the The nice thing with with what we do is there's kind of value on either side. You know, we're always building value for the ecosystem for the blockchain, but we have a lot of products that are, you know, just generally uh, solid as far as like a revenue perspective is concerned. So we kind of we kind of hit all the all the boxes mm. um but some of the deals that we've <laughs> that we've been proposed are crazy you know where they like want to like they'll do like these crazy reverse um uh debt deals where like you pay it off in coin um or there's like uh, there's something called a saft where it's a uh basically a future token allocation that they get um, but it can change based on, you know, your performance and, you know, VCs are always looking at KPIs and that's kind of how they continue to fund. Cause a lot of times, like, let's say you raised a hundred million dollars, you don't get a hundred million dollars that day deposited into your account. You get like 12 <laughs> and then if you do well, you continue to get the, the additional money. Um, so there's, because of the coin aspect of it, because of the blockchain aspect of it, we see all these crazy uh structures you mm. know promissory notes uh based on like price performance and stuff like that and i'm like i can't i yeah. don't control the price like, <laughs> nor really do you have any real like you could have a killer year you know release all these products right. and hire great people and you know, like you could send an awesome update but then the price drops because the market crashes and then you know and then yeah then i'm in debt because of something I can't control. Like there's, you got to watch out. I would just yeah. say, you know, you got to watch out as a, as someone trying to raise money in this space. Now, if you're, if you're just starting out, that's, that's the best way because you can just allocate a ton of tokens to your treasury or to your, you know, founders or VCs or whatever. Um, we're just not in that position. We started, we didn't do a pre-mine, mm. you know, we do get treasury grants on a, on a weekly basis based on blockchain consensus. Um, but we don't have the, we're, we're more of like an OG blockchain, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Uh, where a lot of these new companies are just like, yeah, we'll just have like 400 million coins sitting there for whenever we need to raise money. Um, so which you is like crazy to me. So you start off today, uh, 20 million of investor dollars wants to flow into this product, hypothetically, right? Uh, you say, okay, investors want to invest 20 million. How do you structure it? Do you do, um, pre-sale of the coin 20% goes to the treasury like a linear three-year vesting schedule for employees like what's the how, how, how do you view it what would you do like for for our, for divi as it's currently or if we no, were out to divi? totally like nuco yeah if it was a brand new um yeah i mean you have to it's it's really hard to know how many coins you'll need in the future especially if the price doesn't do what you think it will um so, but you also don't want to set up a, a tokenomic structure that makes it very, very obvious that you're holding a huge supply that you could, you know, manipulate or dump on the market. Um, that dichotomy is really difficult to navigate. I think, you know, drawing the line somewhere. So, yeah, if you were going to raise $20 million, I mean, I would say no more than 18%, you know, you would want 
in your own hands, right? Um, but a lot of a lot of companies do forty, you know, and just don't care, <laughs> and then they still are really successful. So there's there's precedent for for retaining a huge supply. Uh, just philosophically, on my in my mind, it just too much control. Too much control over the centralized. Yeah, yeah. That's not what this is supposed to be about. If this is just going to be another, like, like that's web 2.5. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I suppose, obviously, the, the founders and the investment team have an incentive to do that because they own that, that those tokens. Of course. Right. And so they can, yeah, eff- effectively have price control over the market, introducing new currency into the market when they want to. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. Any other um, like properties you think are important? Obviously, the percentage of coins in the market. I think of the vesting schedule of the founding team is something that I've heard in conversations that tends to be more important than people would have thought early on, whether it's a three-year increasing percentage vesting. So this would be you know, founding team says two people, they each get equal allocation of tokens, say 5% each. Those are vested over a period of time anything else i mean Absolutely. yeah vesting yeah that's that's a huge part of it i mean even with divi we we had a two-year vesting schedule um which worked fine mm-hmm. but um yeah i mean we've seen that like but it's also because like you can see transparently the vesting schedule you see a lot of speculation around coin unlocks now um so you have to again you have to be careful about these things it's hard to strike the exact balance um but yeah, the the allocation of the coins, like there was a there was a company that came out recently, heavily shilled by influencers, and I won't mention the name of the company or anything, but the way that they like allocated their tokens was basically like, you know, X percent for team, X percent for dev team, X percent for, you know, founders. And it's like, you're just saying team five different ways. <laughs> like you're not actually giving these to different people. Um so I think being careful about how things are stated, like yeah. you're reading a new white paper or reading a new website and seeing those those divisions of, of funds, um, not being fooled by a bunch of slices of the pie. Like a lot of times it's really one big slice. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And I've even seen sometimes they'll have the ability to, I mean, this was, seems like the problem with, a problem with Luna was that it wasn't, it wasn't a stable coin in the traditional sense where there's a pegged uh, dollar or some other currency behind it. But not only that, was it an algorithm? It was that the team could just change it. You know, the team, team could just introduce more currency into the, into the ecosystem, which, you know, I don't know if you dove into that, but that, that seems like it was oh, yeah. <laughs> improperly struck at multiple levels. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of concerns about Luna. Um, and you know i'm not going to trash talk anyone but if you if you read their white paper and you really understood the structure of that ecosystem especially how subsidized it was by anchor um it was pretty obvious that this would eventually happen um but yeah having centralized control over supply is literally the worst thing (laughs) that a cryptocurrency can have yeah um the only thing that these things should be regulated by is the code that they're written in. And um, yeah, I mean, and we've seen the effect of it, right? It basically hyperinflated. I think there's like trillions of Luna now or something. And they're talking about buying it back or burning it anyway. Um, 
Yeah, that Crazy. was uh, that was a dangerous. I, I mean, I, the, yeah. the the timing of it and the crash of the market and the say to just crypto market specifically, it just seemed like I, I don't know how much how much influence do you think the crash of Lumina had on like overall crypto crash? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a lot of Bitcoin being sold, yeah. especially to try to prop the price up of, of UST. Um, I, I've seen the the rumors that there were some big funds manipulating and playing some game. Um, we still haven't really been able to verify that, so I don't want to give that any validity until we have more information. But regardless, if you sell $2 billion worth of Bitcoin at any point, like you're going to ca- create a cascading effect. And then you have all these people losing a ton of money, you know, a hun- literally 100 plus percent of their value overnight. Um, that's going to cause a mass panic. If you're holding any yeah. assets, what are you doing? You're not only losses, not only that, like, I-, I think I'd add to that by saying this is not just $2 billion of crypto assets that people are losing. It's it's the crypto assets that they put in the very, very low risk category. So you think about you don't have a portfolio of $100 that I'm going to invest like super high risk investment, that's okay. If that crashes, like I thought about it, but to put it in a stable coin and then have that crash, that is like, that's earth shattering. I mean, that's, yeah, that's. I, I really feel feel for the people that have been affected by this. You know, I see a lot of people that they did, they felt like it's a savings account for them. You know, they're going to make their 20% or whatever, or even if they didn't have it in Anchor, um, but we're just holding a mixture of Luna and UST or doing other yeah. things with it. They've had uh, some faith in the security of that asset. And now their faith in all of crypto is shattered. You know, like it's going to take a long time for those individuals to regain confidence if they're not total degens, obviously. Mm-hmm. 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 I appreciate your time, Nick. You've uh, been really generous. I know it's super late where you are. Um, Throw out a couple things to me. Where are you writing or tweeting or any other personal places? You want yeah, to- I mean, uh, definitely, um, you know, I'm on Twitter and Zap Productions, but uh, f- also follow our Divi pages at Divi Project. Um, like all the social medias are the same thing at Divi Project. So um, and Discord and all that stuff as well. Um, YouTube is always cool. Yeah, I mean, just come reach out to us. Join the community. We're really, really open and welcoming community 24 seven support um can even get you on the phone with somebody if you're if you're struggling oh yeah so um yeah yeah sweet man um yeah man i really appreciate you having me on it's been a really yeah. great conversation yeah this is fun so fun to get to know you and uh hear your story so congrats on all the progress so far and keep kicking ass put your heads down and keep keep shipping and i look forward to seeing at the end of the month the what, what's the name of the product the Divi Wallet. Divi yeah, Wallet, just straight up. Okay, cool. Yep, straight up. Awesome, man. All right, buddy. Talk soon. Cool, man. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Around the Coin. If you enjoyed the show today, consider giving us a quick review wherever you listen to podcasts, tweet about it, or text it to a friend. We really appreciate all the support and growing that we can. If you have any guests you'd like us to bring on or feedback for us, don't hesitate to reach out. We would love to hear from you. 
Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.